Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hi, everybody. It's Vanessa. I just want to let you know that we recorded this episode before the election, and we were hoping to be able to insert something here celebrating a Biden presidency. But as this episode is released at noon on November 5th, we still do not know the fate of the election. But we hope that you are listening in a world in which Biden has been elected as the future president of the United States. Enjoy today's episode. Chapter 24. The Wand Maker. It was like sinking into an old nightmare. For an instant, he knelt again beside Dumbledore's body at the foot of the tallest tower at Hogwarts. But in reality, he was staring at a tiny body curled upon the grass, pierced. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We, of course, want to start with thanking our patrons, Venus Rebholz, Drew Coleman, Caitlin Bauer, James Carter, and Amanda Enos. In addition to Dobby saving Harry, Hermione, and Ron, you save us every month. A big shout out to our local group, the Munich Marauders. It's run by Sophie and Steph, and we're so thrilled to keep learning and connecting with so many of the local groups. So if you're in the South German area, join the Munich Marauders. They'll be thrilled to have you. You can find them and all our other local groups at harrypottersacredtext.com. Ugh, when I'm allowed to go back to Germany, I'm going to come visit the Munich Marauders. They will probably have excellent pastries for you. Okay, so maybe I sneak into the country early. (laughs) This week, our opening story is from our guest, Hannah McGregor, who is one of the co-hosts and co-creators of the fabulous podcast, Which Please, which if you haven't checked it out yet, go and check it out. It's now part of Not Sorry Productions, and we're so thrilled to have them on board. Vanessa had a chance to talk to her, and I can't wait to hear her story. Welcome, Hannah. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
We have asked you on today to tell a story through the theme of mystery. What have you got for us? So I'm a professional reader. I have several degrees in reading books. And a point of pride for me as a reader has always been that I'm really good at grappling with difficult texts and figuring out what's going on in them. I remember really vividly taking a graduate seminar during my master's where we were all reading A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari, which is one of the hardest theory texts that exists. It's like a riddle wrapped in two French philosophers doing a lot of ecstasy. It's a a hard book. And I led a seminar on it. And the professor told me that she was really impressed with my ability to interpret it. And I was like, thanks. That's going to really formulate a lot of my sense of self moving forward. I appreciate that. And because of that, I remember very vividly the first time I ever read a book that I couldn't understand. I was reading for my comprehensive exams during my PhD, and I was visiting at the time a friend's family home in North Bay, Ontario. And I remember we were sitting out back and it was a sunny summer day and it was beautiful out and we were like about to go on a boat ride. And I was just like, let me just really quickly read this poetry book that I have to read for my comps. It'll take me an hour tops and then we'll hop in the boat and it will be amazing. And the book was O Cheetah Den by Aaron Murray, who is a queer Canadian poet who is particularly interested in translation and language play. And I read Ochita Dan, and I had no idea what this book was about. And the reason why this moment has imprinted on me so powerfully is because my embodied response to encountering a text that I couldn't understand was anger. And an anger that I wasn't even in that moment quite able to articulate, I just became incredibly grumpy and curt with the friends who I was hanging out with. And it took me a few days to be like, oh, I was mad because this book was too hard. And it really prompted me to ask myself, where did that anger come from? And why am I so sure that the appropriate relationship that I am supposed to have to texts is one of mastery and dominance, one in which they are a riddle and I figure them out. And it took years for me before I could return, I mean, to that book in particular, but also to poetry in general as a genre and find a different way in. And it wasn't actually until I stopped teaching in an English department and so wasn't teaching poetry books anymore and so wasn't responsible for teaching other people how to understand them that I started to be able to pick up a poetry book, read it, not really know what was going on in it and feel good about that. And there is something for me now about finding a way through with particularly challenging texts that is about actually having an encounter with something that you can't fully understand. And that the point isn't for you to fully understand it, for you to solve it like a riddle and then throw it aside and move on to the next one. The point is to have what I think is a fundamentally ethical encounter with something that sort of defies your mastery. And that's a really different relationship to have to reading and one that I'm continually finding my way into as I think about what it means to be somebody who's a professional reader but maybe not necessarily a a master of uh, the mysteries of every text I encounter. 
what I love about that is the way that I think about reading is reading is practicing loving something. Mm. And I think so much of what you're drawing us to is that part of loving something is allowing it to remain a mystery to you, right? Love is never about mastery. You can know someone so well and that can add to your love of them. But if you are trying to dominate them, right, like that is not going to be a healthy kind of love. And so allowing certain texts, it's almost like allowing them to retain a sort of dignity, right? I get to practice that a lot more frequently than it sounds like you do. I am like, I have no idea what this book is most of my (laughs) life. There's like a famous story about me in my freshman comp class where I thought a poem was about window washers. And it was actually about the Great Depression. So, I mean, poems can be about more than one thing. It could have been about both. Why not? I think it probably was also about window washers. That's a good point, Hannah. Um, How do you now, how has your relationship to the feeling of mastering a text changed? Because I would imagine that there still are texts that you feel like, nope, I get that. Yeah, it's really exciting to me that I get to do a lot of my textual teaching in the form of a podcast. Because there's a sense via collective reading communities like the ones that that form around this podcast or around Which Please, that we are all in process together. And that feeling of being in process together and collectively unpacking things and returning and asking new questions and bringing in new perspectives, for me helps me let go of a little bit of my own expectation of mastery, but also helps me let go of the sense that there's an answer because all you have to do is read a book with a thousand other people. And you realize that there's always going to be as many, you know, quote unquote answers to the text as there are readers of that text. I think that one way to approach texts is to try to catch them out. Again, it's about dominance, right? Am I trying to prove that I'm smarter than this book and be like, haha, silly book, you made a mistake and I found it, outsmarted you again. Like, am <laughs> I, is this book my nemesis? Are we locked in a battle of wits? Or as you said, is it a, an opportunity to ask questions and to explore the exciting gaps that exist within literally every text? Texts are more gap than stuff. What's the opposite of a gap? Stuff. I love that. More whole than donut. And I mean, this chapter, I think the greatest mystery of this chapter, obviously we have death as a mystery, but I also think that rites of burial is such an interesting mystery. Luna leads us to it by saying, like, I think we should all say something. And it's just so unclear to me why people like to say things at gravesides. Do we like to say them for ourselves? Do we like to pretend that the person is listening? And that just seems like one of those mysteries of we don't know why we do this, but we know that it feels good and that it makes it feel like we've honored a life. Yeah. Yeah. What... I find very powerful about that scene is the way that it sort of works through the different kinds of acts that people use to grieve. So there is on the one hand, the speech act, which is, I think, you know, something that we draw on in a lot of ceremonies, the sense that we use language to actually speak something into being, right? You're not married until somebody says you're married now, or like I wasn't a doctor until somebody said, now you're a doctor. 
And so there is something in that moment of grief that is, you know, has this person actually really passed until we say it? But there is also in that scene, the unspeakability of the experience that for Harry, it's beyond language, that death is something that he that he can't find a way to articulate his relationship to. And so for him, instead, it's the physical act, the decision to manually dig the grave. That is the way that he expresses his relationship to this friend he has lost. Which, again, it is an act that you can't explain why it matters, right? It doesn't matter to Dobby. And yet it does matter in that it moves Griphook to work with Harry. And I don't think Griphook could articulate why it matters. There's just so much mystery, even within ourselves, of like, wow, that deeply moved me. It moved me so much that I trust you. And I can isolate the incident as to what moved me, but I will never be able to tell you why. Griphook says to Harry that he is an unusual wizard. And that's all he can articulate. All he can say is like, there is something inexplicable about the way that you are acting. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense to me according to the way that I know that wizards treat goblins and elves. And it is exactly in that sort of mystery of his actions that Griphook sees him as somebody who could potentially be trusted. Yeah. Well, Hannah, in addition to which, please, you also have a fantastic podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda. But can you tell tell the people who have fallen in love with you where else they can find you? Yeah, the easiest and best place to find me is on Twitter, where I spend too much time. You can find me at HKP McGregor. You can also find Witch Please at ohwitchplease.ca and Secret Feminist Agenda at secretfeministagenda.com. Hannah, we... Love having you as part of Not Sorry Productions. We love having you on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And we love Witch Please. Thank you for being here with us today and really, really for all of the work you do. Thanks so much for having me. Hannah is so smart. I mean, you're great too, but mostly Hannah is really smart. Yeah. Do you think that the new Harry Potter and the Sacred Text should be Matt and Hannah? Oh my God. (laughs) Just like two smarter people just a whole upgrade. It's the glow up that all our listeners have been waiting for. I know. Sorry, y'all. I'm not giving up. But you know what I might be able to do better than Hannah? A 30 second recap. No, probably not. But you're here and she's not. So let's try anyway. (laughs) Have you got the clock ready, my dear? On your mark. Get set. So this whole chapter, Harry is kind of resisting the force of of feeling Voldemort's presence in his brain, but like grief and love keep it away because he has to be present to what's going on. And he digs the grave for Dobby and he goes in and he's like, I have to see Griphook and I have to see Ollivander. And he has to choose how how Hallows or Horcruxes. And then he chooses Griphook and he's like, I am, you know, I need your help. And he's like, okay, fine. You're a strange wizard, but I will help you. And then Harry's like, thanks, psych. I'm going to take the sword. And then he's like, Ollivander, do you know about the Hallows? And and, um, Ollivander's like, no. And so then uh, they go. I mean, I was within 30 seconds. I didn't stick the landing. I don't know. You get an 8.2 from the Jewish judge. (laughs) That's incredible. I took difficulty into consideration. I was doing a bunch of high-flying trapeze moments up there. Exactly. I appreciate that. You get points for that. (laughs) All right. 30 seconds on the clock for you, my love. Three, two, one. Recap. So Ron, Hermione, and Harry go like from room to room. They have a conversation with Griphook and then they have a conversation with Ollivander and they get different different information from both. And Harry seems to believe that there's a horcrux in uh, the Lestrange thing. <laughs> and and um, 
why I'm obsessing with that word. And then they go to Ollivander and they learn all about wands. And it turns out that they got Draco's wand fairly. And so Harry can really use that wand. And they're, they decide on Horcruxes versus Hallows. And also they bury Dobby. That was strong. No, it wasn't. I spent a long time trying to think of Gringotts. Well, what I liked is Lestrange, because in my head, it's always Lestrange. But oh. Lestrange just adds so much more class and depth and possible French historical connections. Well, so I read the chapter twice for every episode and I read it once and I listen to it once. And so Jim Dale says Lestrange. Lestrange. So we have to start where Hannah and I started our conversation about Dobby and his burial. Yeah. It just did. It has me thinking about all of the mystery around death and not even the mystery of what happens to the dead, but the mystery of grief and the way that those who survive deal with it. And I think maybe that so much of my hang up around this is that Jewish funerals to me, because they take place in a language that I don't understand, are very mysterious, and I find that comforting. Like, I know all the words, right? Like, like I can do the prayer, but I don't know what I'm saying. And I find that a comfort, that it's like we recite this thing, and it, it almost doesn't matter what it means. It's a time where I can recite something in community and think whatever I need to think about the dead. Well, that's what I love so much about Harry's digging of the grave, because I think his digging is the equivalent of what you're pointing to, of that something that expresses emotions that he doesn't even really know what the emotions are. And I thought it was interesting that he says, I want to do it properly, which to me suggests that he still thinks that magic is not real or not proper, that there's something mysterious about the magic, right? He doesn't have control over the magic and he wants it to be embodied. He wants to sweat. He wants to feel. He wants to... He wants to feel the pain, I think, of what he knows is wrapped up in this grief. And that beautiful moment when Ron and Dean are coming to join him and Harry's already got his retort ready if they were going to ask him, you know, why aren't you just doing this by magic? And instead, they've both come with spades and they're coming to help him. And I think that's doing exactly what you're pointing to, that sense of it isn't these kind of hollow words that actually don't carry meaning. It's this silent action that carries so much meaning in the face of that mystery. I hadn't thought of this when I was reading the chapter, but this is also the way that Jews bury. At a traditional Jewish funeral, there will be two shovels, and you are supposed to bury the dead yourselves as a community. And you are only allowed to do an odd number of shovels because it is like an off-kilter mm. day. And the closer you are to a person, the longer you are supposed to shovel. And there's a humility, even if you like felt very close to the person, you're still supposed to let their children and their spouses and whoever else was like familial close to them shovel longer. And so often there will be sort of people rotating on one shovel and like the close family rotating on the other shovel. And the other thing that's interesting is because you have to do an odd number, you have to count and so you're doing it as an embodied experience. You're not like meditating on how much you love this person, right? It is entirely about the embodiment because all you're doing is shoveling and counting, which is sort of all I think that the body is capable of doing at once, <laughs> at least consciously, right? And I think that the mystery of that is believing that something is happening to you and to the person you're honoring unconsciously. 
Oh, that's beautiful. So Casper, somewhere else I want to point to is is the eulogies themselves, because I think mm. that Luna, we know that she's willing to step into mysteries of things, right? Like she's like, you idiot, Grindylows are real, right? Like she is so comfortable with mystery. And so she jumps into the mystery and does, I think, a really beautiful form of funeral. She doesn't like list everything that Dobby accomplished, right? Like she doesn't say... Dobby was born here and then served in Hogwarts. He was freed by a sock in 1990, (laughs) right? Like she doesn't do a a traditional eulogy. She thanks him for the way that he impacted her. And then I think sort of does a prayer in saying goodbye and I hope you're happy now. Luna's eulogy and the inability of anybody else to really talk made me think that maybe... Maybe we do eulogies wrong. I'm curious what you think about the idea of eulogies really being for ourselves. Mm. I've just been thinking about this a lot lately because someone very close to me is very sick. And so I've been thinking about the potential of them dying. And whenever I imagine it, I am not thinking about their loss. I'm not thinking about all the things that they are not going to get to do. I think about all of the things in my life where they will not be. And I just wonder if funerals are for the living, then I'm wondering what you think about the idea that like Harry could say, like, I always had a vision that you would be at my wedding with Ginny and I hate that you won't be there. Mm. And I always thought that you would be around my dinner table when I had a kid and could teach them about the importance of freedom. And now you won't. Mm. Am I like misunderstanding what the point of eulogies is? Yeah, it's such a big question, isn't it? Because I think with grief, one of the things that we that we know is that there's no right way to do it. And there's going to be a hundred different ways that a hundred different people will need or unexpectedly want, or it can arrive in our lives and it can surprise us what we actually want. And I think Harry is surprised in this moment. You know, Luna, as you said, she she literally says, I'll go first, shall I? She really exhibits kind of spiritual confidence, right? She she knows that, you know, Dobby was a friend or an acquaintance. And so she's able to kind of hold the space and, and help other people, at least in some small way, process what's going on. And the, the reason why I think it's important to look at Harry's reaction is because all he can say is goodbye, Dobby. And the text tells us Luna had said it all for him because in this moment, I don't think he can find those words, even though he holds them in his heart, exactly what you are pointing to. There isn't the wherewithal, like he's in the moments of shock, he's exhausted, he's, I mean, he's probably hurting, he's fighting off Voldemort in his brain, like there's just so much going on. And so I think sometimes funerals and eulogies, although they can feel a bit rote, to some extent, they're like a box which can hold all the turbulence that we're feeling. And nothing could ever express the fullness of that turbulence. And this is what we have. <laughs> it's it's imperfect. I mean, so many ministers and rabbis will say they prefer doing funerals as opposed to weddings because with a funeral, as a religious leader, there's less pressure on you. All you have to do is just hold hold the space, hold the community. Right. It's not about you at all. Exactly. It's not about you. All you're doing is making space. And I think that's what Luna's doing so well. And as you said, it's she's able to do it well because she's so comfortable with mystery. So yeah, I, I that, that's, that's where my mind is. Some of what you were saying also made me think, 
you know, I took a class on death and dying in divinity school and the professor the first day said, you know, I'm just curious how many of you would prefer a quick death over a slow death where you knew you were dying. And well over 90 percent of the class, if not everybody, was like, quick death, please. I don't want to know what's coming. And then after thinking about what it means to die well and how you want time to say goodbye and process and apologize and forgive by the end of the class, I mean, it just flipped. Everybody was like, I wow. I don't want to be in pain, but I would like a slow death. I want to know I'm dying so that everybody can sort of get ready. And so I think so much of this funeral and why all Harry can do is an embodied thing. I think you said the word shock, and I think that's right. I, I just love that because they are in such shock, they are doing all of these actions that feel right to them and that they don't understand. I mean, especially the beauty, and I'm going to get weepy, of them dressing him in all the clothes, right? They don't just bury him with effort. They put socks on his feet. And I think that a lot of people like me, a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious, resist that. You know, I don't pray in English, even though I think sometimes it would help me because I'm like, It doesn't work. What's the point? (laughs) And it's like, who cares? Right. Like if Mm. I think it'll help me and I don't understand why, just do it. And I think that that's what they're doing here. They're like, I don't know why I'm putting hat and socks on him. But like they're literally taking it off of their own bodies to put on him. Yeah, Harry Harry takes off his jacket and almost immediately. And then later we see Ron putting on those socks and shoes and, and Dean adding a hat. And the thing that struck me this time reading it, was that all of this happens at night. And I think that's really important as we think about how mystery can make space for things that we wouldn't do in daylight, right? How nighttime can help us maybe take a risk in this kind of way. I can imagine if it was, you know, high noon and and maybe if there were many other people present, they wouldn't have taken those clothes off and, and, and wrapped Dobby in them. But there's a sort of permission from the darkness, from the nighttime that allows them to do these acts of mystery. And I think we see that even in the text that when dawn comes, Harry's clarity returns about the purpose that he's on and the priorities that he has. And it seems like in that nighttime, there was this pause, this space for something that they couldn't explain, but which felt right at that kind of soul level. And I I, I just love seeing that context this time. I hadn't noticed that before. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The, the final thing about the burial that I loved seeing this time was so often when we think about where mystery is kind of spatially, we think about the sky the mystery of space. And of course, it is an incredible, mysterious thing, right? This expanse that goes way beyond even the best of our knowing. And yet in this chapter, the mystery is about going down into the earth. And so that sense that mystery is both above us and below, just like Dobby, I feel like I feel wrapped in mystery, just spatially thinking about those different layers of where there is the unknown still so much. Which, of course, is also one of the things I'll always take away from divinity school was our community chaplain telling me, you know, as I was falling in love and, and starting my relationship with my now husband, she said, you know, as well as you get to know each other, you will always remain a mystery to one another. And that is very helpful in moments when I don't understand what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Carrie Maloney said... Exactly. But it also it also leaves space, you know, for one another to change and grow and and become because we, we can't ever be fully known to one another. And and I think that was definitely true between Harry and, and Dobby as well. Right. That that sense of friendship and intimacy, but also still mystery and, and distance. And I think, you know, this is something that Stephanie Paulsell taught me in divinity school by way of Virginia Woolf. But like, we are also always mysteries to ourselves. I do things that surprise me all the time. You know, huh, I didn't know I was capable of resisting cake. Whoa. How do you do it? I I, I usually don't. But every once in a while, I'm like, no, I'm too full. It'll it'll make me feel bad. And I'm like, look, look at you. Casper, I'm wondering what mystery you think Dobby will hold in the Shell Cottage, like, lawn for Bill and Fleur. Like, there is now this dead body on their property. And I would like to think that it'll, like, be a blessing to them. Like, there will always be this reminder. Like, that dirt is always going to look different. And it's going to grow differently and their kids might ask. I mean, and there's a gravestone, right? Like this is a marked spot and it's on their property. Do you make anything of that? Gosh, I'd not considered that question. And I, you're right to point to that kind of gravestone. Harry makes this impromptu stone that says, here lies Dobby, a free elf. And the thing that it reminds me of is the extent to which this war touches everyone and everywhere. There's not a group of friends or a family that hasn't lost someone. There's not a place that hasn't had someone taken from it. And it's like a prism, right? Like it's one, it's one refractal of this bigger, of this bigger story. I love that. Um, for Fleur and Bill, this feels like just another reminder of the way in which their lives have been shaped by this evil. I just also wonder if like in the grief process, as people come to acceptance, and obviously we know that 
that's a cycle. Mm. I can imagine being proud of having Dobby on my property, of being like, this is a war hero. Especially if the relationship between house elves and wizards changes, as we hope it does, right? That this is a real leader, not just in his own life, but for other house elves and for other wizards as well. Yeah. Yeah. We have the joy, Vanessa, that in this chapter, our theme shows up as a word, and that always makes me so happy. In the sentence, Wandlaw is a complex and mysterious branch of magic, which which Ollivander says to Harry. And I wonder if you can help us figure out what this placement of that word mysterious means in this chapter. I mean, I think that Ollivander seems to have real reverence for his craft so much so that it makes Harry uncomfortable. Mm. He loves wands so much that he almost doesn't care how they get used as long as they get exploited for their full power. But what I loved was the the metaphors of Wormtail's wand was brittle and mm. uh, Bellatrix's is unyielding and Draco's is bendable. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. (laughs) Like one to one. You're like, yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I I think I appreciate that Ollivander doesn't try to pretend to understand the mystery of wands and that it's up to our interpretations. Like he doesn't understand what that means. He doesn't know Draco well. Hmm. And I like that he just sort of doesn't pretend to know more. It almost reminds me of like a great pianist. Like Hmm. they understand how to work a piano and they understand Mm -hmm. music theory, but they don't understand how and why music moves people in the audience. They don't know the experience that audience members are going to have while listening to the music. So, yeah, that's what it made me think of. What about you? Yeah, the thing that really struck me where the mystery kind of resides in wands is in that relationship between wand and wizard. That comes through so strongly in this chapter. We're reminded about how the wand chooses the wizard. There's even kind of hints at the length of time that it takes to make a wand, right? Ollivander tells us that um, he had to make Pettigrew's replacement wand in a hurry. And so it makes me think about, well, how does the wand develop its choicefulness about who it wants to choose or like does it have a refined taste or I, you know I, there's just so many questions in the magic of of wand lore I guess and of course all of this learning about wands happens right after we've been in a room with Griphook where he's saying you wizards never tell us you like you won't teach us the magic of wands and then we, then we literally go to the next bedroom and we sit down and we're like oh Ollivander tell us all about the mystery of wands um, Griphook you stay here yeah, exactly. But the, but the really interesting thing that happens for me with Griphook is he uses this phrase that we haven't heard before, where he describes Harry as a wand carrier, or, or wizards and witches generally as wand carriers. And it just gives us a completely different perspective within the magical world. It's like a not witch and wizard centric vision of how magic operates. And it places more power in these wands than I had fully understood. Because we've seen witches and wizards do magic without a wand. We've seen obviously house elves and goblins use magic without wands. And so I was reminded just that the wand itself has its own magical power and kind of directionality, which is completely mysterious, even to us at the end of this chapter. Oh yeah. And I love anytime we separate a situation for an identity. And I think that people can claim identities as our darling Hermione does in this chapter, right? Yes. She's like, I'm a mudblood. 
call me a mudblood. But I love as a political act when we separate that. Griphook isn't like wizards. He's like, you're wand carriers. Mm. And I think that all of these things are political. And then sometimes it can be the opposite, right? Like I can imagine someone being like, I'm not a swimmer. I'm a human and I'm a person who swims. I don't want to be reduced to this one thing. I'm imagining Michael Phelps saying that. I don't actually know how he feels about it. I mean, he has literally said as much. He's like, when I was only that persona and I was no longer doing it, I was lost. And he struggled greatly with his mental health. So it it produces us to this kind of essential idea, which is so incompatible with the experience of of fullness of, of who we actually are. But then I can also imagine him like at the Olympics being like, I am swimmer. I am fish. (laughs) Right. And like needing that to pump himself up. Right. Like I I just think that these are political acts. These are things that change. And I do. I think it's so interesting that Grip Puck calls them wand carriers. I am expanded lung capacity. (laughs) Exactly. So, Casper, something that has been like plaguing me for a while, and I sort of think that this is the place to think about it, is thinking about Mm. the goblins as J.K. Rowling projecting something anti-Semitic onto the hook-nosed short bankers, the like money controllers who are, I won't share my secrets with you, but there's something magical about me that you can't possibly understand, which is why Mm -hmm. we have all the Nobel Prizes. I just have such complicated feelings about it. I do think J.K. Rowling probably either on a subconscious level or on a conscious level, and I want to give her the benefit of the doubt on this, that it was subconscious, did write these characters as a Nazi propaganda version of Jews. And like before that, a Christian propaganda method, you know, there was all this propaganda that like Jews looked like rats, Jews with stacks of money. Like these were posters. This was a created idea of what Jews were. And it it was created in the Middle Ages and it was created with a tremendous amount of intent. It was almost like a PR department. Absolutely. Hired someone to do this. And it has a very specific history. And so I guess I just want to point to like the lack of mystery of that and how Mm. I think that the problem with the house elf metaphor and the goblins and even in this chapter, we again hear the name of the like concentration camp that Grindelwald was kept in. And it sounds like Nuremberg. And I just want to say that these are crass metaphors with no mystery in them, which is why they are such failures in metaphors. It is why we balk so hard at house elves being a metaphor for slavery. It's why I balk so hard at the idea when people are like, oh, J.K. Rowling was talking about a negative stereotype of Jews as goblins. I'm like, yes, but you are reifying that Mm. negative stereotype by even having that thought. Like, and the idea that the concentration camps have been reused to like lock up the Nazis is just like so offensive to me. Mm. (laughs) So I just want to say that like these metaphors that come up in this chapter and throughout the books, I think that why they're offensive is their lack of mystery. Like the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, slavery, these are huge things that one metaphor cannot encapsulate. And I think that that is the failure of these metaphors in these books. And that helps me understand why it's tricky to engage sacred reading with things that are so straightforwardly presented, because there's very little room for that mystery of or, or that interpretation. And, and it's actually often the most 
unusual sideways looking at the text that helps us into new insight or that helps us make unexpected connections and that is full of mystery. And yeah, when it's too on the nose, it loses some of that. It loses some of that depth and richness. That makes sense. And, you know, we were we're recording this four days before the election. And I think that that is why we are so offended by Trump is because he tries to make complicated things, mysterious things simple in a way that is just disgusting, is just, oh, yeah, 500 parents can't find their kids and 500 kids can't find their parents. And like, eh, it was an administrative error and who cares? And it was their fault. And I, I think that so much of what is so offensive about Trump is that he's constantly trying to make complicated things simple mm. to acknowledge mystery is to become more human. And and I think it does that because it necessitates humility, right? It means just like Hannah's story that you can't just penetrate every story's meaning. You can't just assert yourself or control it. And And I think that's what Trump and so many others are missing is that sense of like, I don't know, or I can't control that, or I don't, I can't do it on my own. We need to, you know, whatever it is. And I just want to say, It's all the beautiful things, right, that are mysterious, too. Yeah. That's part of what beauty does is it makes the world enchanted. It makes makes space for mystery. I love that word, enchanted. So, Casper, we're moving into Florilegia, which Stephanie Paulsell came on in our second season to teach us about. And I've really come to love this practice. And so what we do is we each pick a quote that sparkled up to us from the text and we explain why we picked it and what we love about the sentence, why it sparkled. And then we put the two quotes next to each other and we see if that creates a new understanding, right, if something mysterious sort of occurs to us from the sentences suddenly being put next to each other. So Casper, what is your sentence and where is it from in the chapter? I chose the phrase, he knows where it is. This comes from the very end of the chapter when Harry has clearly had a plan for most of the chapter and, you know, he's led the trio in this kind of interviews with both Griphook and Ollivander. And at the very end of the chapter, Ron and Hermione kind of catch up in understanding that Voldemort is coming to get the Elder Wand from Dumbledore's grave. And he tells them he knows where it is. For me, it's the moment in which Harry has chosen the Horcruxes over the Hallows. He hasn't run to Hogwarts. He hasn't tried to stop Voldemort. He's accepted that Voldemort is going to have the Elder Wand. And he chose to prioritize figuring out how to get into the Lestrange's vault or the Lestrange's vault. So it just, it's a simple sentence, but it has so much weight. How about you? What what did you choose and where is it from in the text? It's my favorite moment in the chapter, I think. It's, I do, said Harry, I really do. Please get some rest. Ollivander is sort of humiliated and I think embarrassed and scared that he gave up information to Voldemort. And he's afraid that Harry's going to either judge him or punish him. We don't quite know, probably both. And he's saying, you don't understand. They use the Cruciatus curse. Mm. And Harry says, no, I do understand because Harry has been Crucioed and so has Hermione. So actually two thirds of the people in this room with Ollivander understand, you know, and Harry just responds, please rest. Like, don't worry about it. So why, Casper, why do you love this sentence? He knows where it is. 
One of the things we've been tracking throughout our reading this time around is when does Harry know that he has to be the sacrificial lamb, right? Like when does Harry understand that it is his death that will in part get rid of Voldemort? And there's a moment earlier on in this chapter where he's wrestling again with Dumbledore because he's like, Dumbledore understood Ron with the Deluminator. He understood Pettigrew with the hand. What is it that he gave to me and why? He says to himself, am I meant to know but not to seek? What does that mean? And I feel like in this moment where he's allowed Voldemort to go and get the Elder Wand, there's something about that knowing and not seeking that has already come true. And it feels like a step, even if subconsciously, to his own capacity to do what he's going to do in just a few chapters time when he walks into the forest. So it feels like just another moment on that journey towards this greatest sacrifice that that he will offer. Yeah. And to your point, Ron says to Harry, oh, wow, you really understand Voldemort. And Harry's sort of like, yeah, parts of him. I wish I understood Dumbledore. Dumbledore. (laughs) (laughs) If Carrie Maloney had sat with Harry at Div School, she would have been like, listen, everyone will always be a mystery except this one really evil dude who's trying to kill you. Him you'll understand pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Carrie. How how about for your sentence? Why why did you choose this one? I think that this moment encapsulates why I love this book so much. And I think it is in part because we watch Harry become such a kind adult in this book, right? It starts with him sort of forgiving Dudley. Mm. And then, you know, Hermione breaks his wand and he's mad at her for it, but he knows it wasn't her fault. Ron comes back and he forgives Ron immediately. And now with Ollivander, he's just like, no, I know. I really do. I really know. Please just rest. What a beautiful adult Harry has turned into that he he's carrying so much on his shoulders and he could be snapping at everyone. And instead, just at every turn, he's just forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And I think more to the point, assuming good intentions, right? Like none of these people have actually wronged him in any intentional way. But he's just like, you didn't mean it. I understand what it's like to be cruciated. And I think that the I understand, right, like I really do understand is beautiful to me because he's taking his trauma and his pain and turning it into something so beautiful, which is compassion, And I don't think that everyone who experiences trauma can or should or has to do that. I just think it's really beautiful that Harry does. So let's put these two sentences next to each other. I do, said Harry. I really do. Please get some rest. He knows where it is. I mean, I'm immediately seeing Voldemort. I loved what Hannah was saying about the gaps in a book being as much about as, as as the words in there. And I feel like the gaps in this sentence is all Voldemort. Voldemort is the one who led to Ollivander's torture. It's Voldemort who's obviously knowing where the Elder Wand is. And it's this invisible link that has just shaped Harry's life beyond recognition. I'm also thinking about just the way in which rest and seeking are opposed in in, in these two sentences together. All Voldemort has done and all anyone who's ever sought the Elder Wand has done is to try and find it, to control it, to take it, and then to like seek out the people who are going to take it from you. And what Harry is offering in this other sentence to Ollivander is like, you don't have to seek anymore. You don't have to try. Just just be, just rest. So that that contrasting orientation is strong here as well. 
what I see is Harry saying, you know, I, I really do understand. Please get some rest. And then turning to Ron and Hermione and being like, he knows where it is. And what, what it is is obviously ambiguous. But like Ollivander knows that he didn't do anything wrong. Like, and sort of as a prayer, like he knows where it is. He knows where his self-forgiveness is. He knows where, where his role in this war is. And I hope he knows that no one judges him and that this isn't his fault. He's done nothing wrong. Should we flip them? Yeah. So he knows where it is. I do, said Harry. I really do. Please get some rest. I mean, this time it's like, well, Harry knows where the Elder Wand is. Totally. It's he knows where it is. And Harry's like, yep, I do. I really do. You get some rest. I'll go get the Elder Wand. I'll be right back. And then we'll watch a movie. (laughs) Well, or or more like I'm not going to go and get the Elder Wand. Let's just watch a movie right now. Absolutely. Like maybe get some ice cream, but like you don't need the wand. (laughs) I mean, I guess the other thing that feels prescient is I'm thinking about Augustine and the way in which he tells us that we will always be seeking until we rest in the only place that will give us rest, which is in in his perception, God. And so it feels like Harry is kind of accepting to rest in the mission of the Horcruxes. Like that Mm. there's something that he's not going to stray beyond the mission that was given to him by Dumbledore, which, you know, I I don't want to equate Dumbledore with God too much, but there's a sense of acceptance and limitation and saying like, this is my path and it's not that. And I will find contentment in this path that I have. So I'm just, I'm just thinking of Augustine in that context. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for doing Florilegia with me, Casper. I'm so glad we get to do Florilegia. It's such a good one. It really is. It really is. I'm loving doing it with the classes. Mm. We are creating like these long Florilegium documents through Google Docs and it's, it's really beautiful. So good. And tickets for class three are still on sale. Starts in less than two weeks. Join Vanessa. Sign up. (laughs) This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another Vanessa we're going to hear from is in our voicemail today. But isn't it fun to imagine that I called in and left us a voicemail? Honestly, that's what I was expecting. Is it not from you? It's not. It's another Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa, Casper and Ariana and everyone at the Sacred Text team. I was just listening to the Malfoy Manor episode where Casper had a pardes about the word albino sounding like obladi oblada backwards, which made me laugh and then immediately made me cry because he said it reminded him of his dad singing that song on a Saturday morning. And I have the same exact connotation where it reminds me of my dad playing piano growing up. He would always play that song. And he doesn't play anymore. So it's very nostalgic for me. And I miss him a lot because I haven't seen him in a while because of COVID and being in a different country. I know this is a reality for a lot of people right now. So I just want to give a blessing to everyone that has been separated from their friends and family. Um, I had surgery two weeks ago, which was very difficult. The recovery was stressful knowing that I didn't have the support around me that I that I needed from my family and then I still know about this endometriosis sucks <laughs> and it was my first surgery and I've just been really emotional lately about just everything and, and I found that reading the seventh book has kind of given me a little bit more perspective on how Ron and Hermione and even Harry must be feeling being separated from their family Harry's family being just Hogwarts and feeling at home there and I just want to give a blessing to them as well and I want to give a blessing to Casper because I want to thank him because even though the memory made me sad it also made me very happy um, having that come into my day so thank you guys oh thanks Vanessa I'm glad we shared dads who love that song <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad to hear you're recovering okay And if your endosurgery was successful, you're about to feel so much better. Whoop. Speedy recovery. So, Vanessa, there's so many people to bless, but who did you choose to give a blessing to in this chapter? I want to bless Fleur. A commitment that I have, probably the only real commitment that I have is um, one of hospitality. I I really try to open my home to people. And Fleur does that in this chapter. Like people just show up bleeding and with trauma and she just gets to work. She's like, okay, here's Skelligro. Here's a bedroom. Here is my bed, right? She Mm. gives Griphook her bed. And I, as someone who is committed to hospitality, really struggle with that commitment because sometimes being hospitable is a big pain in the butt. (laughs) And it's sometimes hard. You're like, ah, I said I would let people into my house and I don't like that person or, you know, or I don't want to host that many people, or I was hoping for a quiet weekend, right? Who knew what Fleur thought she was going to be doing? (laughs) And so I just want to bless Fleur for being such a wonderful model for me and reminding me how important 
hospitality is. So, I mean, like she's doing it in a war. I mean, it's just really beautiful what she's up to in this chapter. What about you, Casper? Who do you want to bless? You mentioned it in passing, but I want to give another shout out to Hermione's moment where she claims the word mudblood. You know, Ron's instinctive reaction is like, no, don't call yourself that. Like, don't fall into the language that they use. And we've talked about the problems of clear connections, but in this case, it was, I don't know, I I really appreciated the kind of connection to the queer liberation movement where people claimed words like gay and queer and said, yeah, that's what I am. And I'm not ashamed about it. And there's a real fearlessness in Hermione in this moment, which comes right after she's been tortured, which is insanely incredible that that resilience And I think in some way that clarity of like, they're going to keep calling me this and I will not let it mean something bad. They can call me it and I will embrace it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just in awe of Hermione always and, and this chapter particularly. So special shout out to Hermione with a blessing. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in our Facebook common room. Join our local groups and come join the amazing community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us an iTunes review, and you can, of course, always send us in a voicemail. You do not have to be named Vanessa. (laughs) I just read the latest iTunes reviews, and I love you guys so much. Thank you very much. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 25, Shell Cottage, through the theme of doubt. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Big thanks to Hannah McGregor, our special guest today, the co-host of Which Please. Thanks to Vanessa for her voicemail today. And of course, thanks to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll be with you again next week. Bye, everyone. Vanessa, we loved this chapter. Yeah, it's so good. Everyone, book seven is awesome. Casper has been brought over to my side. (laughs) Yeah, I always think that book seven is just like many, many years in the wilderness in a damp tent. And like that just brings me back to so many childhood trips that I did not enjoy. (laughs) And so like book seven is just associated with like, there's no toilet, you know. (laughs) So I'm thrilled to know that they're now at, you know, Shell Cottage, where there is adequate plumbing. That is the best reason to not like a book. That's why I don't like books that take place on ships. The whole time, I'm just like, where are they pooping?